Father, it is a joy to, to gather together. Uh, we thank you uh, for the common bond that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ, so that when we do gather together in fellowship, it's not merely uh, people congregating together, but it is also you within each believer uh, fellowshipping among us as well, so that when we talk to one another, we are encountering Christ within one another. Lord, we thank you for that, uh, that great privilege that we have to be in your presence uh, as your spirit is here dwelling within us and among us, uh, enabling us to love one another uh, and helping us to follow after Christ. Uh, but none of us is yet where we need to be in our walk with you. We still have a lot of growing to do. Uh, we still have much more to learn about who you are. Uh, we still need to grow in our love for you and in our love for one another. We find ourselves falling short of your glory every day, not loving you with all that we are, not loving one another as we ought. And so we are in continual need of, of your forgiveness and your grace and your strengthening hand so that we can become the sons and daughters of yours that, that you want us to be. And so, Lord, we ask that through your word, you would continue to do that heart surgery on us. And anyone who is here who does not yet know Christ, uh, who is still cut off from the life of God, may you, through your word, cause them to be born again. May you uh, cause the blindfold to come off of their eyes so that they may behold the glory of Jesus and the ugliness of sin such that they would turn from their sins and put their trust in Jesus to be their Savior and their Lord. We, we trust you to do these things, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, please take your Bibles and turn to Galatians chapter 3. And I do encourage you uh, to take your Bibles each Sunday because the message I'm getting uh, hopefully is not just coming off the top of my head uh, or even through the week, just me thinking stuff up. Hopefully it is coming straight from the Word of God. And I want you to see it in the scriptures uh, because my words are not going to help anybody. It's only God's word. So please do take your Bibles and turn to Galatians chapter 3. We're looking at verses 6 through 9. Last week we saw verses 1 through 5 where Paul began to prove the doctrine that God declares us righteous through faith, not by works. It's through faith. And in verses 1 through 5, he began to cause or call them to remember their previous experience of the gospel so that they would be encouraged to cling to that gospel, the gospel that Jesus died for sinners and that he rose from the dead so that if we believe in him, we will be forgiven and declared righteous. Now, Paul continues to prove that justification is by faith in these next set of verses that we're looking at this morning. So let's start in verse 6 of chapter 3. Paul writes, Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him, or counted to him, as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. 
When I was a, a new believer about 15 years ago, I think that's when I truly repented and believed in the gospel, I began to take my faith seriously. And ironically, at about that same time, I had a crisis of faith. Because when I, I finally uh, began to follow after the Lord Jesus by faith, I came to realize that many of the things that I was believing Many of the truths that I had accepted mentally, I realized that many of those things I had not seen clearly in the Word of God for myself. In other words, I had accepted them as handed down to me, but I did not know how to prove them from the Bible. If you were to ask me, Josh, prove to me that, that salvation truly is by grace alone through faith alone. I don't think I could have shown you in the Scriptures for sure why it had to be that way. In other words, as I titled the message, I didn't know if I could prove to you that justification really was by faith alone. And so it caused me to doubt and fear that maybe I had gotten started down the wrong track. Maybe I wasn't believing the right things. Maybe I was mistaken and headed in a different direction than I thought I was actually headed. And so that question, that doubting, that wondering drove me into the scriptures to find out for sure, does the Bible really teach that we are justified by faith alone in Christ alone? And as I read and studied and prayed, God showed me that, yes, what I was believing was what the Bible was teaching. And that caused my doubts to be put to rest because my faith, I saw, was resting on the word of God not on the ideas of men, which change all the time. And as, as we study this book, we're going to find in these next verses that that is what Paul is doing for the Galatians. He's helping them to see that justification by faith is not just something Paul made up. He's helping them to see that the scriptures have taught that from the very beginning. That is what he is showing them in verses 6 through 9. He is appealing now to the scriptures. In verses 1 to 5, he appealed to their experience, but now, more importantly, he's appealing to the scriptures. And as we go through these four verses, we are going to find ourselves assured that our commitment to this doctrine of justification by faith is not a commitment that man made up. No, it's, it's a commitment that comes straight out of the scriptures themselves. We're going to find out that we really can know for sure that justification is by faith, not by works. When we come to verses 6 through 7, we find that the truth about justification can be known. You know, sometimes we hear different people saying different things. And they're giving different arguments for why Jesus is God, some for arguing why he's not God, some arguing that justification is by faith, some arguing that justification is not by faith. And we wonder, who's right? Can we even know for sure? Is there any way to put an end to my doubts? Well, we find in verses 6 to 7 that, yes, the truth can be known for sure. Let me point out just one word in verse 7 before we begin working through he says, Paul, therefore, know, or therefore, be sure. We can know for sure that justification is by faith alone. So let's look at uh, verses 6 through 7. Let's read verse 6. Paul says, 
Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Here Paul compares the Galatians' experience with Abraham's experience. In verses 1 through 5, what was Paul asking them? He was asking them how they got saved. And in the, the shorthand he was using, how did you receive the Spirit? Was it by the works of the law or was it by hearing with faith? And what was the answer he expected them to give to him? Hearing by faith, right? That's how they were saved. And now in verse 6 he says, even so Abraham. Abraham, just like the Galatians, was saved by hearing the gospel with faith, not by works. So he's drawing that comparison between the two. And then he quotes from Genesis 15, verse 6. So Paul, he's going back to the Bible to prove that justification is by faith. He quotes Genesis 15 and verse 6. Let's go back there so that we can see it ourselves. Genesis 15. God has met with Abram, who would later be called Abraham, and he, he called him to leave his family, to leave his, his home country, to go to a land uh, where God was going to make promises to him. So God has already called Abram out at this point. And verse 15, God continues to make promises to Abram. Verse 1 says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Abram was an old man, and his wife was an old woman, and together they simply did not have the ability to conceive and have a child. So Abraham, with no descendants, is hearing these promises of God and, and wondering how is God going to make this happen. Verse 3, And Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then he, Abraham, believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. So, Abraham hears this amazing promise that can happen no other way than by the power of God, that you are going to have many descendants. And how does Abraham respond to the promise of God? He believes, right? And verse 6 tells us that the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. What is the it there? It says the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. What's the it that God counted as righteousness? Yes, belief, right? Belief. It wasn't a work that Abraham did that God saw and said, oh, good job, you did that. I'm declaring you righteous because you did that. No, God simply made a promise to Abraham. Abraham believed in that promise and God counted that belief to Abraham as righteousness. And if you were to go and read the rest of the chapter, you would find uh, God, 
or, and the writer of Genesis emphasizing that this right standing Abraham had with God was by faith. Because as you read the rest of the chapter, things get very weird. God calls Abraham to sacrifice some animals. And what does Abraham do? He takes those animals and he cuts them in two. And he kind of lines up the halves opposite of one another, making a pathway through these dead animals. And then Abram goes to sleep. And darkness just comes upon him. And what does he see? He sees a smoking oven and a burning torch, which signified the presence of God. Think about when God was leading the Israelites through the wilderness. What were they led by? A pillar of smoke and a pillar of fire, right? Well, you have those same representations, similar representations, walking through those dead animals. Now, what's the significance of that? Well, in those days, apparently that's how you made a covenant with someone. You killed animals, you set the dead pieces opposite one another, and both parties who were making an agreement would walk through those dead pieces, signifying that if either one of them went back on their agreement, they should be killed like those animals were killed. But who walked through those pieces in chapter 15? You find that Abraham doesn't walk through it. Only God walks through those pieces. In other words, only God was taking upon himself alone the responsibility of fulfilling the covenant he'd made, the agreement he made with Abraham, and taking upon himself alone the consequences of, that would arise if he didn't fulfill it emphasizing that this right standing that Abraham had with God was purely by the, the graciousness and the activity of God. So how did Abram get right with God? It wasn't through a work he did, right? It was through faith. Is that clear? Anybody have any doubts about that, about what God's word is saying there? So Paul, in Galatians 3, he is proving from the Old Testament that justification is by faith. You are counted righteous by faith, not by works. I was reading a, a commentator, and he said the best commentary on Genesis 3 is Romans 4. So let's go over to Romans 4, because Paul expands this concept there. So Romans chapter 4. And in Romans 4, that, that chapter comes on the heels of chapter 3, obviously. But in chapter 3, Paul is teaching this same thing, that justification is by faith. And in Romans 4, Paul is doing the same thing he started to do in Galatians 3. He's proving it from Scripture. So let's, let's start in verse 1 of Romans 4. Paul brings up Abraham again. Abraham is his key example. Verse 1, Paul asks, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. He quotes the same passage, Genesis 15, 6. Verse 4, Paul goes on, he says, Now to the one who works... His wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited 
as righteousness. Abraham was not one who worked for a right standing with God. He was one who believed unto a right standing with God. Then Paul brings in another example of justification by faith, and that is David, verse 6. He says, just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. And then he quotes from Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. David was a man who was forgiven. Even though he murdered a man, even though he committed adultery with the wife of the man whom he had killed, he was forgiven. So clearly, David did not arrive at a right standing with God by works, did he? Because he was not righteous by works. It was by faith that God declared David righteous. But when you think about it, Abraham and David, they were both circumcised men, right? And that's the issue in Galatians. The, the Judaizers are telling these Galatians, hey, you need to be circumcised to get saved. So the question is still not settled for us. Do I have to do some kind of work to get myself in the position to where I can be justified by faith? Well, Paul brings this up in verse 9. What does he ask in verse 9? He says, is this blessing, the blessing of forgiveness, the blessing of justification, is this then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. Abraham would get circumcised. You read about that in Genesis 17. But which comes first, chapter 15 or chapter 17 of Genesis? Chapter 15, right? Abraham was right with God. He was declared righteous before God before he ever got circumcised. So Paul here is proving that justification is by faith. It's not by a work that you do. Let's go back to Galatians 3, and let's look at verse 7. Paul draws a conclusion from what he's just said in verse 6. Remember verse 6, Paul said, Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was credit, reckoned to him as righteousness. Verse 7, Therefore, be sure or know that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. Now, Paul here, he brings in new terminology that we haven't encountered yet in the book of Galatians. He brings up this phrase, sons of Abraham. And we need to unpack that a little bit, because what does it mean to be a son of Abraham? As, a, as someone who's not descended from Abraham, how can I be a son of Abraham? Secondly, we have to think about how is, how is it that being justified by faith results in me being a son of Abraham? Because that's not immediately apparent to us. There's some connection because Paul says Abraham was justified by faith, therefore you are a son of Abraham if you believe. But how, how does one thing result in the other? So let's just unpack this phrase, son of Abraham, a little bit here. This phrase son of Abraham, or you often find it uh, rendered seed of Abraham. It's a 
variation of the phrase. But that phrase, son or seed of Abraham, is used uh, in different ways in the Bible. It's used with a few different senses, depending on the context in which it is found. Let me just walk you through those. The first sense in which we find son of Abraham or seed of Abraham being used is a natural sense or a biological sense. Abraham had more than one son, right? He had the son of promise, Isaac, through Sarah, but he had another son before he had Isaac, right? With Sarah's maidservant, Hagar. Who was that son? Ishmael. And after Sarah died, Abraham had more sons. I believe her name was Keturah. So there were many sons of Abraham, right, biologically speaking. For example, uh, go over to 1 Chronicles chapter 1. We see the, the phrase son of Abraham used in this natural biological sense. 1 Chronicles 1 and verse 28, it says the sons of Abraham were Isaac and Ishmael. The sense there is obviously biological, right? Now, under this same category of, of biological, natural, there's a more restricted sense. And that sense is when the phrase is referring specifically to Israel. It's, it's referring specifically to those natural, biological sons that Abraham had through uh, Isaac. And even more specifically, through Isaac's son, Jacob. We see Paul use the phrase in that way. Let's go back to Acts 13. Acts 13, the first missionary journey of Paul. He gets to the first Galatian city of Pisidian Antioch. He enters into the synagogue and he, he begins to preach a sermon. And in verse 26... Paul addresses those present. It's a mixed crowd in the synagogue. There's Jews and there's Gentile God-fearers who are worshiping together. And listen to how Paul addresses the Jews who don't believe in Jesus yet. Verse 26, he says, Brethren, sons of Abraham's family. Okay? Again, that's the natural biological sense, but specifically the, the children who descended through Jacob. So that's the first sense in which the phrase is used. There's a second sense in which this phrase is used. We could call it a unique sense or a one-of-a-kind sense. This is the sense in which the phrase is used to refer to only one person who's ever lived. Only one person qualifies to be uh, the son of Abraham in this unique sense. For, for, to show you a couple examples of this, let's go to Matthew chapter 1. And we're looking at verse 1. Matthew opens up his gospel by saying, The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The second example I want you to see is in Galatians 3. It's later in the chapter. It's down in verse 16. Paul says, now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Seed means descendant. 
He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is, Christ. So Jesus is the son or seed of Abraham in this unique, one-of-a-kind sense, right? Now, there's a third sense, and this is the last one we'll go over. A third sense in which that phrase can be used, and that is a spiritual sense. A non-biological sense, a non-natural sense, a, a spiritual sense. That is the way Paul is using it here in Galatians 3 and verse 6, when he says, it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. He's using it in that spiritual sense. That's the only way that, that you and I, as a Gentile believer who, who does not descend from Abraham, that's the only way that we can be a son of Abraham. It's in that spiritual sense. We're not naturally sons of Abraham. We're certainly not the unique son of Abraham. Only Jesus is that. We're spiritual sons of Abraham. Go back to Romans 4 because Paul points this out there as well. He uses this spiritual sense of the phrase. Romans 4. We've read verses 1 through 10. Let me pick it up in verse 11. And this is a mouthful, but I'll sum it up after we read it. Romans 4, verse 11, continuing to speak of Abraham, Paul says, And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them. And, verse 12, the father of circumcision, to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. Again, that's a mouthful, but Paul says Abraham is, is the father of all who believe, whether they're circumcised, a Jew, or uncircumcised, a Gentile. So again, he's using that, that idea of Abraham being our father, of us being his sons or daughters in a spiritual sense. He's not talking strictly biological there. He's talking spiritual there. Now, how is this possible? How is it that when I believe in Jesus and God justifies me through that faith, how is it that I am made, spiritually speaking, a son of Abraham? How does that work? Well, when we believe, who are we united to? Christ, right? And Paul has already spoken of this relationship that we have with Jesus. Remember chapter 2 of Galatians and verse 20? Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. He was speaking there of union with Jesus. And what he speaks of there is true for every believer. And who is Christ to Abraham? He's the son, right? The seed of Abraham. So when we believe in Jesus and we're united to Jesus, what do we become? Because we're united to Jesus. Sons or daughters of Abraham, right? And Paul, at the end of chapter 3, he says that quite plainly. Look at verse 27 of Galatians 3. Paul says, For all of you who were baptized into Christ 
have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are what? Abraham's descendants or Abraham's seed, heirs according to promise. So that is why Paul says in verse 7, be sure it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. Because it's only by faith that we are united to Christ. It's only by faith that we are declared righteous. It's only by faith that we become spiritual sons and daughters of Abraham. Now one thing before we move on that I want to clear up is just this idea of God reckoning our faith to us as righteousness. What does that mean? Is it, the, is it true that our faith is some kind of work that earns us righteousness with God? When, when Abraham heard God's promise and believed, did God step back and say, whoa, I am so impressed with you that you believed my promise. I'm going to pay you the wages of righteousness. No, no. That's not what is meant when it says God reckoned Abraham's faith to him as righteousness. Because when we believe, we're united to who? Jesus, who is the righteous one. We are not righteous. Abraham was not righteous, but Jesus is. And so when we believe, we're united to him, and it's his righteousness that is credited to us. Martin Luther, he often spoke of uh, justification by faith in terms of us being married to Christ. When I married my wife, we, uh, we joined our bank accounts together so that everything that was in my bank account was now in her bank account. Everything I had belonged to her. The church is the bride of Christ. When we believe in Jesus, we are united to Jesus, and all the righteousness that's in his quote-unquote bank account becomes ours, right? It's because we're united to him. So we can see very clearly that justification is by faith alone. The scriptures tell us that very thing. In verses 8 to 9, Paul emphasizes this all the more. He really stomps down on the gas pedal, leading us to the conclusion that, that justification is by faith alone. And he explicitly says that Scripture makes that truth known to us. The Word of God declares clearly to us that justification is by faith alone. The Scripture makes that truth known to us. Read verse 8 with me. Paul says, The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. It's very interesting how Paul describes scripture here. First of all, just a note on the word scripture. It's the Greek word graphe, Think of graphene in your pencil. It just means writing. Paul says the writing. That's what scripture means. What is this writing? What is the scripture doing in verse 8? It's foreseeing. It's preaching the gospel beforehand. That's kind of a weird way to say it, right? I mean, a piece of paper with ink on the page doesn't foresee, doesn't proclaim. So what is Paul getting at? Well, he, he quotes Genesis 12 and verse 3, so let's head back there. 
Genesis 12, and let's just read verses 1 through 3. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Uh, in Genesis 18, 18, it says all the nations will be blessed in you. And Paul kind of mixes those two together in his quotation. But in verse 1, who is declaring this? The Lord, right? Yahweh is. But Paul says the scripture is declaring this. Paul views scripture as merely an extension of God himself, of the voice of God himself. It's kind of like when you send your kid to summer camp and he's going to be there for a few weeks. You write a letter to your child and in that letter you're encouraging him saying, I miss you, have a good time, but you're also giving instruction. Make sure you listen to your, your camp counselors. Make sure you're nice to the other kids. And your kid gets that letter and he reads it and say he describes it to someone else it would be appropriate for him to describe it in one of two ways. He could either say, my parents said, or he could say, the letter said. But it's the same thing, because the letter is merely an extension of your loving authority in that child's life. That letter is just as relevant to that child as if you were there personally and verbally expressing that very same message to them. The authority didn't dip just because of the medium in which it was delivered, right? Well, it's the same with the scriptures. This book that we have, it is the writing of God. It is his letter to us. And it's just as relevant, just as authoritative to us as if God were visibly here and audibly declaring it to us. And, and Paul, that's how he sees scripture. And he says, if scripture says it, that settles it, period. Now, we need to pay very close attention to this promise that scripture, that the Lord who recorded in scripture is saying, because the Judaizers, they weren't paying close attention. They were saying to these Galatians, hey, you got to become a Jew in order to become a son of Abraham, in order to get right with God. You got to be circumcised and you got to submit to the law of Moses in order to become a son of Abraham, in order to enter into the blessing that God is giving Abraham. But they weren't paying close attention to the promises of God. What did God promise Abraham in Genesis 12, verse 3? His promise was, let's see, let me find it in, in Galatians there, verse 8, all the nations will be blessed in you. It's, just, it's interesting that the, word, the Greek word for nations is the same as the Greek word for Gentiles. It's the word ethnos. Think of ethnicity, Irish, Chinese. That's the word. Anytime you see it translated Gentiles, it's ethnos, nations. That's the word. Paul says that the promise of God is all the nations or all the Gentiles will be blessed in you, Abraham. If you're still in Genesis, hop over to chapter 17, because 
God reiterates this promise, but he says it a little different way. But it's the same significance. Genesis 17 and verse 5. God says to Abram, No longer shall your name be called Abram, and the name Abram means exalted father, but your name shall be Abraham. Abraham means father of a multitude. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. A multitude of nations. The Judaizers were saying that, hey, you Galatians, you've got to become a Jew. You've got to get circumcised. You've got to submit to the law of Moses before you can become a son of Abraham. But what does the promise of God say? All the nations will be blessed in you. Abraham will be the father of a multitude of nations. Did God say to Abraham, you're going to be the father of one nation, a Jewish nation? No, the father of many nations. So on the, on the basis of that promise, did the Galatians need to become Jews before they could become children of Abraham? No, they could become sons of Abraham. They could become Christians by remaining uncircumcised Galatians as long as they believed in the same God that Abraham believed in, they became his spiritual children. And it's very interesting that, let's go to, to Acts 15. It's worth just touching on this. Acts 15, this is the Jerusalem Council, remember? We've mentioned it a, a, a few times going through Galatians. And at this council, what were they hashing out? They were hashing out whether or not the Gentile believers needed to get circumcised, whether or not they needed to submit to the law of Moses. In other words, whether or not they needed to become Jews, right? Acts 15, verse 1. This was what sparked the issue, the need for a council. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren Unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's what they were saying. And that was very uh, concerning to the church in which they gave that message. And so they sent representatives to the church in Jerusalem so that the apostles and the elders could get together and, and hash this out. And toward the end of this council, James goes back to the word of God to find direction and what the decision should be. Look at verse 13 of chapter 15. After they had stopped speaking, James answered, saying, Brethren, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles, or the nations, a people for his name. With this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. And then he quotes Amos 9, 11 through 12. After these things I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles, or the nations, who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. And if you were to look it up in Amos itself, and read verses 11 and 12, and the rest of the chapter, you'll find that the context is the coming kingdom of God. Amos is foretelling the coming kingdom of God, when Israel will be restored to the land in peace and in security. And 
uh, James quotes verse 11 and verse 16 there. He talks about how God will raise back up the house of David. That's a reference to the Davidic covenant. When God promised David, you'll have a, a man to sit on your throne forever. And then in verse 17, James quotes Amos 9.12. And, and we find in this verse a reference to the nations being in or possessed by Israel, which is a, a, a building text on the promise that God made to Abraham, that all the nations would be blessed in him. So James reads that from Amos, and what does he observe? When the kingdom of God comes, is it only Israel? What else, what other people will be in that kingdom? The nations, right? So the coming kingdom, you'll have Israel and you'll have the nations. And what does James conclude from that? Therefore, we don't need to make these Gentiles become Jews in order to enjoy this coming kingdom. They can still be the nations. They're believing in the same God. They'll be in the kingdom with us. We don't need to make them the same as us. And it's incredible how consistent the scriptures are on this. Turn with me uh, to, John, uh, to Revelation, rather. Revelation 21. Where we see the, the new heavens and the new earth, the kingdom that is coming. Revelation 21, verse 1, the Apostle John, this is his prophecy that God gave him. Verse 1, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. So you have the new Jerusalem, which is the capital of what nation? Israel, right? Now drop down to verse 22. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple, and the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of the Lord has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. And now, what do you see in verse 24? The nations, the nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed, and they will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. You see how consistently Scripture speaks to this issue? That promise that God made to Abraham, all the nations will be blessed in you. Back in Galatians 3 verse 8, Paul says that that was the gospel that the Scripture preached beforehand. That is good news. All the nations will be blessed in you, Abraham. Because it means that we don't need to come under law before we can experience the blessing of God. We don't need to get circumcised and obey in order to earn the right standing with God that we need to dwell with him in his kingdom. 
all the nations as nations will be blessed in you, Abraham, if they believe the way you have believed. And then very quickly, verse 9, we have Paul's great conclusion. He says, so then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. Just sums it all up right there. And the blessing he's talking about, that we are blessed with Abraham, is the blessing of justification. The blessing of having a place with God forever in his kingdom. And Abraham is called the believer here. What kind of faith are we talking about? What kind of faith does God reckon to us is righteousness? Is it an intellectual kind of faith? Like, I believe in gravity. It's just a mental assent to some kind of truth? Is it that kind of faith? Is it a sentimental, wishful kind of faith? Like, I believe in Santa Claus? Is it that kind of faith? No. What kind of faith is it? Well, we see it in Abraham, right? You have Abraham, an old, childless, uncircumcised, pagan man, and you have God promising this man greatness, abundant children, land, blessing, and there's no earthly way that any of that can happen. And how does Abraham respond? He takes God's word for it. That's the kind of faith Abraham had. That's the kind of faith you and I are justified by. It's a take God's word for it kind of faith. A faith that treasures what God has said, that trusts what God has said, that builds its life upon what God has said, just like Abraham did. And that gospel that that God preached to Abraham way back then, as God continued to write scripture, more details of that gospel were filled in. And what is the full picture of the gospel that we get? It is that God has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live a righteous life for us and to die on the cross for us, paying for our sins and rise from the dead. And John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Are you a believer like Abraham? Are you taking God's word for it? Do you believe that he is able to do that which he has promised and that he will be faithful to do that which he has promised? Let's pray. Lord, we, we ask that you would give us a take God's word for it kind of faith. May you make us believers like Abraham was. We thank you that Jesus uh, is is the answer to to all that you foretold uh, that was coming. He is the one who makes it possible for us to be justified by you. He's the one who uh, brings us all the way to heaven. Help us, Lord, to trust in him by faith. Help us not to try to get to you some other way than through faith in him alone we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.